Health Plans, your Medicare plans, insurance solutions, and resource agency. We have a variety of plans and products that fit your needs, benefit requirements, and budget. With many low or no-cost premium plans, zero co-pays, and much more. Our licensed benefits advisor's priority is your health and well-being. Call us today and book your no-obligation consultation. 1-929-367-5269. Folks, welcome back to the iHealth channel. iHealth Radio with your host, Hurricane Age. New day, new show. Excellent topic. Topic that, that, that you know, relates to health and healthcare, and most importantly, the doctors, the providers. And I have with me a guest that we're going to drive a little bit, you know, into like, what does it take to become a doctor and all the challenges that someone in the profession would probably encounter and how to interact with certain, certain things within that, uh, I guess, path. And so without any further ado, I have with me Claire Eunice, Dr. Claire Eunice, a pediatrician. Hello, doctor. How are you? I'm well today. Thank you for having me on the show. It is a pleasure and an honor, and I know we're going to have so much to talk about today, and you know, I, I didn't do a good justice with the introduction. There was a very simple, I know there's more to this and, and to you. So first things first, doctor, would you please tell us a little bit about your background? And, and I know I mentioned pediatrician, but you know, just you in general, and then we can talk into like the whole thing that, you know, the work that you do and also your book and the content of your book. Yeah, we do have a lot to cover in an hour. I know. <laughs> So to tell a little bit about me, um, I am a pediatrician, and when I was in medical school, I really realized while I was going through the process that my whole worldview was changing as I went through medical education and learning how to become a doctor, how to practice medicine, all the knowledge, but also the pretending, the following other doctors around and sort of taking on this cloak of responsibility. And there were so many experiences that were so rich, I just, I ached to write them down. So I actually took a little bit of extra time to graduate from medical school. I actually graduated about six months later because I decided to enroll in graduate school for creative writing. So about six months after I got my medical degree, I also got my Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing um, because I really needed to write about that experience. Awesome. Um, yeah. So that's that's the short version of- <laughs> Oh, no, no. I'm My waiting for more. That, that was good. That was good. But, but so let's break that down. Uh, you know, first of all, I, I, I have to admire what you've done because, I mean, not only you went into the medical piece, but you also took another angle and, you know, add some other value that you can use within only parallel, you know, with your core business, which is, you know, the patient care and, you know, being a doctor. And, and by the way, I love the idea of pediatrician. I mean, we all, I mean, I'm a parent, so I, you know, we do, we do love our pediatricians because they take care of our kids. So <laughs> we love our doctors, but definitely, you know, as parents, we, we appreciate the work you do. And, and so that's that, but then let's talk about just the medical piece, right? You know, you would talk, you mentioned that you had some sort of an interest in, as you identified the whole process of becoming a doctor and, so, so let's, let's just define something for people. You know, people know medical school is, is medical school, but how do we get into medical school? Just, just as a basics. Oh my goodness. Um, okay. So, um, you know, this is decades ago that I got into medical school. So, you know, I would say that my grades in college mattered less than my test scores and my applications and probably interviews as well, because you're applying to take care of people. I think it is important to be able to show interest in people and be able to talk to people. At least for me, that was the case. There are so many ways to be a doctor and so many different kinds of doctor that you can be. And many people will go to medical school school to do research, and they aren't necessarily intending to be face-to-face -face with patients. And those may be people who got excellent grades in college. I was not one of them, so I don't really know. But um, <laughs> I do know that it's a combination of grades, test scores, and interviewing, um, as well as application. But what I found out when I got to medical school was that it was way more rigorous than anything I'd ever done before. Um, and part of that is I took time off after college 
and went and lived in the mountains, which is where I felt most at home and most myself. And I had a year of waitressing and ski instructing and sort of um, enjoying my creative opportunities to do some writing. And then I went to medical school and was completely bowled over by how hard I needed to study um, and how unprepared I was for that experience. So as I understand it, medical school now is a little bit more integrated where you start with clinical experiences, seeing patients earlier than we did when I went. The first two years when I went were almost all, not completely, but almost all book learning. And it was just overwhelming (laughs) for me and definitely brought in some moments of, am I really meant to be here? Um, So definitely some insecurity there. And I really had to be in touch with my sense of purpose. Like, was I going into medicine for the right reasons? Am I really meant to do this? And that come, that brings in that question of a calling, right? I, yeah. I would say I had a calling to medicine. I really felt like I was supposed to do it. But while I was in the middle of studying, I wasn't so sure. There were times <laughs> that I was like, well, maybe I misread that, that intuition. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but when you get to the clinical experiences and you're actually seeing patients and following doctors around in various specialties, that's, I think, when you really have these moments that are, um, I think the word really is about, is, is really transformative, right? My, my, the, so the book that came out of my graduate school experience that I didn't publish until this past April, and I held on to this manuscript for all these years, um, is really about transformation. It's about what happens when someone who's idealistic and thinks they're on the right path faces a really difficult challenge or many difficult challenges on the way to becoming what they think they're meant to become. And um, how do you hold on to who you are and yet allow yourself to change enough to be good at your future profession? Wow. Well, well, you know, doctor, you you, you raised the, the, the flag right there about the idea of someone wanting to go into med school. The, the perception that we have, at least, you know, from an outside world, right, is that you want to be a doctor. That's kind of, and, and I remember, you know, when we, when I were, when I was a kid, I think the most, you know, common job that everybody wanted to be is a doctor, a lawyer, a cop or something of that nature. And, you know, it's like, what do you want to be? I want to be a doctor. I want to be an engineer. I want to be an architect. So, so you have some, some list, of, you know, a list of things and doctor was always on top of the top three. And, but, but you mentioned calling and whether that actually matches when you get into it. I mean, the first thing you were faced with is that it was, it was a lot of work. It was different from what you thought it was going to be. And it was just not the experience you hoped for at least the first initial two years. And you said that that's changed over the years. Obviously today it's different, but, but nevertheless, that everyone listening and watching that knows anything about medicine or doctors, they probably have the wrong perception. I think we learned that today because that's not necessarily how we see it. You, ha- you get into it, then you discover the whole process. And, and to your point, the colon is, is important because a lot of people sometimes wind up doing something that they may not be really meant for, or it's not meant for them. And so, and then they're basically in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they're not going to really thrive the, the right way because they're not going to be delivering the best. So, so what do we say to that effect? Because that's a big component of the discussion today. You know, I think you bring up a great point. And um, there are plenty of people who get into this and go, uh-uh, this isn't what I'm meant to do, right? Um, and that's, you know, I have admiration for people who are willing to really, truly stop and take a look and redirect if they're not in the right place. And I certainly had uh, classmates who did that while we were in medical school, not very many, but, um, and I think I was sort of intimidated by anyone who was so sure of themselves to know they were on the wrong path. Because at the time, I was really struggling with that, like, am I in the right place or not? Is it just that it's hard? Or is it hard because I'm not, I don't have the right skills for this? But the part that was hardest for me was all of the academic part. And that isn't, once you get through medical school, for most of us, that isn't what we're doing. I I had no intention of going into research ever. I really have always been much more interested in people and in face-to-face interactions with people and helping them feel better. You know, doctor, that's interesting because I, this is the first time I really heard clearly from a doctor that there are plenty of people that go to med school or, or, or just to, you know, to be a doctor school type of doctor school 
to to do research more than actually to do medicine and 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 really execute and be in the field and and you know doing wounds and and seeing patients. So 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 it's it's kind of amazing to hear that because that's not what we think of when someone is going to med school to become a doctor. You don't think they're going to a doctor because they're going to go do the research part. You just think that they're going because they're going to have a specialty and they're going to be serving you know and working with the people directly. So that's interesting that you said that because I I would have not thought about it that way. <laughs> Although we know there's researchers out there, but you you think they're more like you know academic you know researchers. They're basically PhDs in different fields, and they just do the different you know research business. But in the medical specialty, I think biologists and things like that, you know, they might wind up as doctors, but they just do it differently. So it's 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 a very different angle from where I stand right now to hear this, and hopefully our and you know audiences will be like, oh wow, that's a whole different you know new thing that we hear. So. Yeah. We should be grateful that so many people do want to do research, and many of them do practice medicine and do research as well. Um, that just wasn't, I didn't have that level of academic curiosity, um, but I went to a very good medical school where people, I mean, there was just, there were great opportunities to do this kind of research in addition to practicing medicine. So I don't want to say it's either or. There are plenty of people who do research while they are practicing medicine, and we are so grateful that they do, right? We come up with fantastic new therapies all the time and they need to be trialed and we need people who know how to do that research in a way that makes it medically useful. So um, it's not either or necessarily. I just meant that I came to it definitely from a little more of the social interest than the academic side. And by the way, I, I love that because to your point, there's that everybody's different and, and she, she, there is a big deal in, in terms of the need for someone to actually do that because to your point, how do we get into all the innovations if everybody's really just practicing? Nobody's, you know, trying to figure out what's the next best thing, right? So, so we've we've come a long way. I mean, in medicine, I mean, years and years and years. And uh, every day you hear new, uh, you know, innovative stuff that's happening out there, whether it's surgery or taking, you know, that's being used and so on and so forth. Even just treatment in format and so on and so forth. So that's that's awesome. Now, but but so the first two years were difficult. It's all, you know. The, the reading and, and, and the courses, right? And then you put all that to practice. And so, so now what was the main transition that kind of like, whoa, this is different now. This is, I love this part versus like what I was. It isn't, it wasn't purely like, oh, wow, I love this now. It is that it was different. <laughs> so um, one of the things I did in my book is that as I went through each of the rotations, I combined the stories of that rotation or that specialty with one of my outside interests. So for example, um, in the chapter that is about pediatrics, I also write about being a foreign exchange student. And to me, it felt very similar, right? This was my first first clinical rotation. So the first time I'm showing up supposed to be a specialist of some sort, I'm supposed to have knowledge and a vocabulary that I didn't really yet know. And it was very similar to me, um, it, to being an exchange student. So that that chapter melds with that. And then um, there's another chapter, for example, my surgery chapter also is very much about swing dancing, because that was something that I took up while I was in medical school and really enjoyed. Um, internal medicine happened during winter for me. And so that's interspersed with stories of skiing. So um, one of the things that I, I really had fun with in this book as I was writing about each of these is I was comparing what I was learning and who I was trying to become with who I was and what outside activities I loved. Because that was really the question, I think, for anyone who goes through something as intense in, as medical school is, how do I incorporate all this new information and still be myself? How do I become a doctor and still be that um, carefree mountain waitress <laughs> who didn't ever want to leave where she was to do this. Like, how do you mix those two things? So that was the device that I used as I went through this. And I had so much fun writing it because um, in each of these different chapters, I was able to really delve deep on what mattered to me about my outside activities um, and the, the athleticism that matters so much to me. So, so first thing, what is the name of the book? <laughs> it's called Balance, Pedal, Breathe, A Journey Through Medical School. Wow. Very nice. And you held on to this for all these years instead of like, you know, publishing right away. Is there a reason for that? Or, you know, you were still working on? 
just life. So um, medical school is busy, but residency is busier. So, I, you know, I graduated from both these programs. The manuscript was not quite done. And I started residency and residency was a whirlwind for three years. And then I got married and then we moved and I started practice and then had children. And, and, and so there was one thing after another, but I'm going to tell you something else that I don't think I've mentioned in another podcast. I think the other reason that it sat for so long was that I really was insecure about publishing it. Um, Because when you're brand new as a doctor People start calling you doctor and you just don't feel like you have earned that title yet. And so I think there was a part of me that wasn't ready to be exposed as much as I am more comfortable with now as someone who's been practicing for several years. Um, I wasn't ready to put myself out there and be judged in another way when I was already trying to establish myself as a doctor and and deal with those worries that come from being new at something that matters so much. Well, I think I was smart because, you know, you wanted to build the credibility and the time and be able to really fill that book. You know, when you talk about it, you're, you know, no one can question and you know how people would like to stab on things and like, Oh, what do you know? Right. Well, now I know a lot. I know just yeah. quite a, quite a bit that I can talk about all this stuff, you know, nice and comfortably. And that's, that's pretty cool. And so, so now, you are a teacher and a coach for clinicians and you help clinicians today and, and fellow doctors, I guess, and or student doctors. So how, how did that happen? I mean, is that something you do? Like, I'm assuming that's a part-time. That's not what you do physically. I mean, you still are a pediatrician operationally, right? Yes. I'm still, I'm, a, I'm still a pediatrician. I've been practicing part-time for several years. Um, pretty much since I had my second child, I've been, um, I might have been a little bit more than half time for a little bit, but I pretty much been half time clinical. So that's seeing patients. And then um, the clinician communication coach role is very part time, but it's an opportunity to help other um, doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs in my medical group communicate with their patients more easily. Because often when there are problems in medicine, it comes down to understanding one another. <laughs> um, and there are little things that we can tweak in these interactions that will make it more meaningful for both patients and the clinicians taking care of them, and also make sure everyone comes out of it feeling good. So as a doctor, I feel good if I've done something that helps my patients, right? And it doesn't feel good if patients are not understanding what happened there or have a ton of questions afterward, or don't, they're questioning my credibility or whatever it might be. So there's a lot that goes into communicating between um, doctors and patients. So that's a little, a little side role. And then um, something I started a few years ago is a literature and medicine program at my, in my medical organization. And in that role, that's one that I kind of created <laughs> um, and it is on the side, but um, but I get to teach other clinicians how to write and I get to lead some writing workshops and I get to lead some classes in which we talk about literature and do some prompted writing and a book club. <laughs> and my, my love right now is really narrative medicine, um, which is another kind of class I've started to teach recently. So that would you... Please kind of define that for us, narrative, you know, medicine. So this way we can, at least for our audiences, like uh, to be clear what that means and obviously for our doctors as well. So narrative medicine is this quietly revolutionary use of close attention to stories um, in order to reclaim relationships in healthcare. That's, that's my version of a definition of it. Um, as deep. <laughs> it's, well, it's a field of medical humanities. It was created um, by several people, um, including Rita Sharon at Columbia University. Um, right around the time, actually, that I was writing my book, this was sort of codified as this field of medical humanities, but it's still not widely known. Um, and there's only really one program for becoming certified in narrative medicine, and it's at Columbia University. So um, it isn't accessible to everybody in that way. But what I love about it is that it absolutely speaks to me. It speaks to my love of writing and literature and the fact that if we pay close attention to stories, if we pay close attention to um, not just what's actually happened, but what we, the stories we're telling in our head, what we're noticing and what we assume is happening. But if we really pay close attention, 
um, it really allows us to relate to one another in a much more authentic level. And just like I was saying, I mean, it, it really dovetails also with being a clinician communication coach, right? So much goes into that ability to receive someone's story, be able to share that story or represent somebody else. Um, and then the kinship that develops there. And to me, that's, that's essential medicine. And that's where our medical system is in danger of falling apart is because there have been, there's so many things that come between doctors and patients now. So, um, Insurance. <laughs> I am not criticizing you. <laughs> that's, that's an inside joke, folks. <laughs> we, we, we started the discussion about the, me being an insurance word. So. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, but there are, I mean, there are, there's so many pressures on any interaction, right? Like you have to have the right insurance to even get in the door at my office, right? And then you get in the door and then you're, um, you know, you're set up with a certain amount of time. Everything's supposed to happen in a certain time unit and your insurance will only pay for certain things and not others. So that is a factor, right? <laughs> um, and there's all of these pressures that are on patients who are very worried about what cost they're going to pay because there's not very much transparency about cost. And then on the part of clinicians who are pushed to see more patients more quickly, um, and, you know, just do it all over again and over again and over again. And so there's there's a lot that takes away from the chance to just sit down face to face with somebody and have a real conversation and really understand what's wrong. Thank you. That. And, and that is a big, big issue. I mean, our healthcare, you know, has so much <laughs> problems. We can we cannot enumerate all those problems currently. I mean, worldwide, not just in the U.S. I, I don't think there is a system that's out there that is really like the best right now. And the, everybody's trying to figure it out. <clears throat> and cost is, is obviously as, as a factor. Time is a factor, and the system itself is a factor. Uh, you mentioned something powerful about you know people, you know, in the insurance world, we we see it because we are you know we see that the patients are going in for claims. We don't like that, but it is real, right? But the, when you look at healthcare and, and healthcare systems and hospital systems and all stuff, you know the members or the, the patients don't have plenty of time with their doctors. You know the average visit is ten minutes to fifteen minutes. That's not enough to to build a rapport with your patient and really know what they know, what they need, and and just like to your point, have a, a good discussion and get to know them one on one, right? It's almost like very limited uh, unless you're in the private practice and you have your own time and you maybe do some sort of concierge medicine, which is also limited to certain people. It becomes very difficult. So it's a tough place. Then you have also the hospitals and, and like the emergency doctors and so on and so forth. There is no, you know, doctors are moving quick and they just have to process. And it, I know it's not their fault. It's just that that's how they been. The system is designed and it's a tough place and it causes a little bit of, I guess, mistrust, or sometimes even people are not so happy about the system. They're not really thrilled. They don't even want to go there. And so it changes the dynamics of the love. Like doctors historically have always had a high, you know, level. They've been always held to the highest standard and, 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 and they still are. But, but I think the problem is that people now, they just don't have the same fate in the process. And sometimes they're not really sure. Do I, some people don't even go to doctors because they, they avoid that. They just, I'm healthy. I'm not going to go there or, or they go to a hospital and they're not happy because they just basically get processed. And sometimes they don't even see the same doctor. If you're in, in a rotation to your point, especially when you're in a hospital system, there's, you never see your doctor. <laughs> it's I, not somebody else that that's always there. And it's a challenge. So, so how do you kind of, work with the new clinicians to actually adapt to this this change and and maybe to to maneuver around it because i mean there's no way out of it but but there's there are certain ways i'm that that, that are possible to actually navigate the system mm -hmm. yeah and i think that's you know that's part of where the communication comes in and then also making sure that your practice setting is suitable to you make sure that you have enough i mean this is speaking to other clinicians but making sure that we have enough control over our situation, our environment that we can say, hey, you know what, sometimes I need more time and I'm going to book a double appointment for this patient or for this issue. And sometimes it's not in that same moment, but we recognize that there's a need for it and we bring that patient back and we build that rapport. And it may not be all in one day because it might take four hours to really get to the bottom of what somebody needs, but maybe it's over the course of a series of appointments. Um, I think if we are able to keep that relationship, and that's kind of a central thing in narrative medicine, is this concept of relationality. Mm -hmm. um, 
which is, I think, maybe a word that they made up. I'm not really sure, but well, it's, adopted. Really, it's, well, it's really that that relationship is central, right? Like everything comes from that. If you're truly authentically listening to someone and hearing what they are saying, not just what they're saying out loud, but what they're saying with their body language, what they're saying with their posture, what they're saying about by who they bring to visit with them or whatever it might be. If you're truly receiving somebody's story, you're you're 90% of the way there in making a diagnosis or in helping them. And so the biggest obstacle is not being able to truly authentically be there with them. And so this is from my perspective. I, I think that as clinicians, our challenge is to make sure we are not too burned out to be present with our patients. Mm-hmm. So maybe that means that we need to work less clinically because clinical medicine is not for the faint of heart right now. And we could talk about that more later. But being able to show up fully present, fully listening, because you can get a lot out of 10 minutes if you're really fully presently there. Um, and then if it, if you can't, then you need to create the situation so that you can. And as long as we keep that relationality central, um, medicine still has the joy or the practicing medicine still has the joy that attracted me to it to begin with, right? The ability to really connect with and help another human being is the whole point, at least for those of us in primary care. I'm not a surgeon. That's another story. <laughs> but for those of us in primary care, that's the that's the thing. And if your healthcare system just makes that impossible to do, um, then it's not the right setting <laughs> and we need to figure something out or we need to innovate within healthcare. And I, I wish I were smart enough to fix healthcare because there's a lot that needs to change. Um, but there are a lot of people who are recognizing this. And my hope is that we don't lose all of the great clinicians from medicine because burnout is high and a lot of people are leaving medicine. My hope is that we can actually harness those people who are realizing what's wrong and be able to really change healthcare for the better. But individually, me as a human helping other clinicians, all I can do is help those individual interactions be meaningful and um, rewarding so that we come back for more and we keep doing it and we keep taking care of our patients. Well, thank you, Doug. And, and you know, I, I really, I, I really, admire the piece that that you do in this work because you're helping those new doctors you know almost like you know navigating what you probably had faced originally when you went into the school and and not you know there was nothing available at the time for you i'm assuming you know at the time that wasn't the case but the idea is that now you're devising things for them where they can have a better potential um maybe education uh, a format that they can actually present themselves differently or at least address different things, you know, in, in a much better way, an easier way, and they can perform better. And, and one thing that we hear all the time is that sometimes, you know, there's uh, bed, bedside manners and discussions. Some doctors are very blunt, you know, and but this is just the general uh, ideology that we hear. And sometimes uh, there's a big question about like, are the doctors too direct, you know, when it comes to diagnosis, for example, uh, you know, that's a big thing. And I know doctors are faced with that. Like when somebody has a tough disease or whatever, something, they have to actually share that information in a lot of culture, for example, that is like taboo. You don't want to talk to them. You don't want to tell them that it's lethal or terminal. That is a tough one. I mean, how do you prepare someone actually to actually do that and do it without, you know, any, um, hesitation? It's, uh, it's gotta be a tough for any human to actually, you know, uh, di- really convey that message uh, to the parents, especially in your case, you know, you're talking to parents about children. No one wants to hear bad news about their children. And, and it's a tough, as a matter of fact, my oldest son just had an accident last week and he, he went to surgery and I had to talk to the surgeon and he had to break to me like, you know, what it was. And, you know, he had to literally come in and give me the whole diagnosis and the prognosis eventually and what that means. And, and it is, he did a terrific job breaking it down, but it is, difficult when you actually are on this side and you're like, what's going on? So how do you deal with that in terms of educating the new clinicians or even some existing ones that have the practice? Well, well, that's a good question. I mean, I think, and so this is going to get philosophical really quickly. Right? That's, that's all good. So we, well, we in our culture really think that bad things happening is an aberrance. It's not something that's supposed to happen right? Nothing bad should happen to us is sort of our presumption. And it's really not true. Bad things happen all the time. Um, And they had to put to good people all the time. And 
um, what you define as a bad thing can be different for one person to another to another. But you're right. In healthcare, we definitely have some bad news that we have to share. And, um, you know, there's different levels of comfort with sharing that. But ultimately, it's really important that we convey the information, the most important information, and give people a chance to digest it and come back for details. So kind of depending what's going on, we know that it doesn't work to give someone, okay, here's the diagnosis and here's the 20 things that you need to know about it and the 20 next steps and your five next appointments and then send them out the door. Because most commonly when people hear bad news, they get stuck on the bad news and they're not really processing anything after that. Mm -hmm. And so this is, again, that's part of that relationship piece is that we need to be able to figure out where our patients are with that news. And for some people, hearing bad news is so out of what they ever expected to have to deal with that they have to just cope with the idea that something bad can happen before they can really absorb more information. And so it needs to, it, it takes time <laughs> and it, it takes being willing to sit with some silence and some grief and wait for questions because when people ask questions, they're more ready to hear follow-up information. Um, whereas if we just come in with a spiel, um, <laughs> it's, it's not useful. It's no more useful than giving them a piece of paper and walking back out the door. So um, I'm fortunate in pediatrics. I don't have to give bad news that often um, compared to a lot of other specialties yeah. where there's um, there can be quite a bit of bad news. You know, I, I have clinicians I've helped coach who are oncologists, right? There's quite a bit of bad news in oncology. And I would say that some of the doctors I admire most are oncologists because I think they have a very um, mature understanding of mortality and of the fact that none of us is going to get out of this alive. Right. <laughs> Let's face it. <laughs> the most certain so, thing is dead in life. Right. So yeah, right? it's the only, it's the only thing that's certain. And, and I think once you are comfortable with that, it's a lot easier to handle these really big diagnoses and these life changing diagnoses um, without fear and without, um, being overly abrupt and running out of the room, which is what everyone's fear is. I think that their doctor will do is just drop a bomb and take off. <laughs> no, I think, I think, well, first of all, you don't get to be that level unless you've, you've been, you know, quite a bit trained on, on, on a lot of levels, but, but you're right. That is a tough game. And, uh, and then again, it, it is, it is reality. And um, it, it's not so much that people are not clear about it. I think just that we are always in denial when we hear bad things, right? Nobody wants to hear that it's happening to us. And, uh, you know, it could happen to everybody, but when it comes to us, like, whoa, what happened here? And so it's usually the shock, you know, wave that, that you get, and then, then eventually you get through it. And to your point, like I, I just had a show and we've talked about how to really break that, you know, uh, uh, information and then to a deeper and authentic, you know, way. And, and it's not easy to actually have that tough conversation with someone or ask the question or even, how do you, you know, use empathy or sympathy? I don't know. Like sometimes it's tough to, to figure out what to say and how to say it. And you're afraid to say that sometimes you avoid saying it. And so, so that's a challenge. So, so doctor, I want to just, uh, I, we kind of talked on the patient side a little bit, but now you mentioned something about burnout and burnout can happen to all of us. But I think with, with the doctors, you guys don't rest, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I know doctors that work seven days a week and, you know, sometimes I don't know how they do it. I mean, my doctor literally works seven days a week. He's got so many things. He's all over the place. And um, I, I don't know how he does it. I mean, he's happy. He loves what he does, but it is, it's got to get a toll on you physically. I mean, you just can't possibly continue. And to, to your point, how do you maintain that and still deliver optimum? Mm -hmm. Right. So, so, so what, what, what are some of the things that actually, uh, in place today to help some of the clinicians? And maybe what are some of the things that clinicians complain from? So I think, you know, some of this is our training. When we're in medical school and residency, we're really taught to put patients before ourselves. We're taught to put our, to defer our needs um, and that our needs are not as important as those of our patients. Um, and, and it, it really, 
feels wonderful to meet someone's needs and to take care of someone and to feel like you're doing good. And that can be all encompassing. So it's really easy. And at least I, I certainly felt this when I was in training, that it would be easy to just give in completely and just be owned by practicing medicine and be owned by that sense that you are needed all the time. You're needed and you're meeting that need and there's nothing else more important. And you could just be completely swallowed up by it if you give into it. Um, And I think clinicians struggle to figure out where the boundary is between that, which can feel like the most important thing in our lives, really, depending what else you have going on, that can feel like the thing in your life. And so why would you turn away from something that you feel good about being good at Um, and yet it is exhausting and it can be emotionally exhausting because we take care of people who are sick. We take care of people who are dying, who are dying, who, um, you know, who affect us emotionally. And you can only put that on the back burner for so long. So, um, gosh, there've been, there's been so much about self-care lately. And if I have one complaint about, um, how this, wave of burnout has been handled is that it really has started with, oh, you know, doctors need to take care of themselves. And so all that does is put the blame on the people who are suffering of like, oh, well, you know, you're not practicing self-care or here, why don't you learn about mindfulness and then you'll be okay. We're really what anybody needs when we're overwhelmed is a little bit of of a step back. We need to take a step back and take stock and uh, be able to make sure we're in touch with what our priorities are um, and make sure that we have time to process the difficult things that we're seeing. And I think that's sometimes lacking is if no one gives you the permission to do that, mm-hmm. it's hard to stand up and say, hang on, my needs are just as important as the needs of these patients who I'm taking care of. We're not really taught to do that. So it ends up being something that we personally need to come to and come to grips with. Um, there is there's all kinds of um, initiative. Like there's there's um, counseling available, for example. There's a move to practice mindfulness to prevent burnout. Um, but I think in practice, it really is, is up to the individual clinician to take advantage of what is out there and to make time for themselves. Um, I know for me, as I was going through medical school, I really felt like I wanted very much to hold on to the joyful things that had brought me that far, that had kept me sane that far. Um, And yet it was surprising to people to find out that I was doing anything outside of medicine. What? You rock climb? What? You, You ride horses? Like, how can you do that? It's like, we tend to think of people as just this one thing, but we are all multifaceted and we are all multidimensional and we need to honor that in one another. And a lot of that change in medical culture has to come from early on, from medical school on. I feel like my medical school was actually quite encouraging of that as much as any can be. Um, and yet, you know, it still was a very individual choice to say, no, I'm not, I'm not giving up the other things that I love to do this. I just, I have to take a little more time to get there and I have to practice part-time so I don't lose them. Well, that's a lot. Well, so, so doctor, again, within the burnout, uh, I know we just, just over the pandemic when I'm not, I don't want to be like, you know, so I hope it's all over, you know, cause I mean, it's only, you know, a few months back when you think about it and, uh, you know, what was the, the impact in the clinician world? I, I, I can only imagine that is, it was disastrous where people were really, and you mentioned something earlier about people leaving, you know, because of the burnout, I think the pandemic did a whole number on everybody, mm-hmm. uh, especially the front line and, and you know, med- doctors and nurses. So, so what's, what's been done, you know, throughout the pandemic, I guess, to support the, this and then potentially after to actually mitigate some of the damage that's done. Hmm. Well, I don't think that the mitigation is a complete process yet. Okay. I didn't think. <laughs> Second but, but question. I had for, to ask. <laughs> um, you know, for me personally, and I think for many clinicians, when this pandemic hit, this was the biggest test of our commitment to our patients to go to work every day in the face of this very uncertain virus with the fear that we could bring it home to our families with the realization that we could absolutely sacrifice everything, including our lives, in order to do what we were trained to do, 
um, and to show up anyway. And I think connection to purpose and meaning is very important. But at that particular juncture, when this first started, it was terrifying. And it was especially terrifying, of course, for our ER doctors, for people who were really truly on the front lines of, of seeing sick people. Um, it was horrible. They were living apart from their families in a lot of cases. They were stripping in the garage and showering before coming into the house and just constantly terrified. And many of them becoming ill and losing colleagues or losing um, nurses and other staff to the virus in the middle of it. So it was commonly compared to a wartime situation. And I think medicine has rarely felt so much like a wartime situation than it did in those early months of the pandemic. So there's quite a bit of post-traumatic stress that's happened as a result of getting through that. The fact that the pandemic was so politicized is just criminal <laughs> and heartbreaking because on top of having that stress, there were people who were denying that the pandemic was real, that it was even happening. And that denial of suffering, I think, does as much damage as anything else. So um, I might have forgotten the question a little bit here, but. <laughs> no, no. So, so the idea is like, what, what, what was like some of the things that were happening to, to help these doctors or clinicians within the period of, of pandemic? And then is there anything that's learned from that that is actually being established today to actually maybe prevent this? Because, I mean, we don't know what the, the world's going to hold on. You know, uh, the future is uncertain, as, as we know, in terms of what can happen. I mean, nobody expected a pandemic of this magnitude and it happened. So now it's just like lesson learned. So how do we maybe prevent something, the same burnout or, or, or like having the same impact if God forbid something else happens? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm just not yeah. wishing for any of that to happen, but just to be prepared. Well, I mean, there's a concept that I heard shortly after all of this, well, in the middle of all this called burnover. So it's not just burnout, but it's burnover. And that just means that you're burned out, but you keep going because there really wasn't an alternative. Um, we don't, there are no replacements coming in. There's no reinforcements. We just have to figure out how to get by. Remember also early in the pandemic, we didn't have enough equipment to protect everybody. So, I mean, we, we finally got to a point that equipment I think is replete and we have enough of it, but I think that's really the only thing that is, uh, sufficient in terms of how we've managed afterward, which is to say, if there were another pandemic, I don't think we're ready for it still. Um, I think that we are far from able to respond nimbly. And when monkeypox showed up and thankfully is not on the scale of COVID, it showed to us that we are not ready in our country to handle another pandemic. We are still way too slow. Um, part of that is because we live in a country of personal freedoms and lots of skepticism. And so even if everything went perfectly, we identified the virus right away, we got a vaccine out within a month, convincing the general public that it's in their best interest and the best interest of their fellow humans to take basic measures and get vaccines is a whole nother challenge. Um, so our country is never going to respond to these threats the way that some other countries can. That doesn't mean that I want to give up our personal freedoms, right? Sure. It's a flip side of the same coin. Um, I think, and this is a frustration, I think most of our healthcare organizations run everything very close to the wire. The whole operational strategy is to have no excess so that there's no wasted money so that we can maximize profit for our um, administrators and our, our insurers and everything. And the downside of that is when there's no margin, there's no margin. So if half of your ER staff goes out sick with COVID, everyone else is going to work double or triple time to try to make up for it because there's no option. So that's what I mean. I think that we have not learned, to be honest. And I don't know how we go from this system of scarcity, of deliberate scarcity, to one in which we actually have enough depth and enough ability to absorb when something bad happens, let alone if something catastrophic happens. We can't even handle if something like the flu happens, which is what's going on right now. Yeah, We have a lot of flu and we have a lot of RSV. We have too many sick patients. And I actually just got a message today that's asking me to work extra because we don't have any way to handle it. So unfortunately, we are still trying to learn from our experiences. And I, I don't see that that has really happened. 
Doctor, thank you so much for for being as as frank about it and and as open about it, and 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 it is true. I mean, it's the reality of things, and it, yeah, it, it's got to take a lot more work uh, across a lot of different angles to actually get somewhere and hopefully be fully prepared. I mean, I I wasn't asking because I I know that we're not prepared, but but in in the impact for clinicians, how they are they're really dealing with it. That's that's the biggest part of it because at the end of the day, you said it over i mean they, there's nothing they can do they just have to deal with it and they keep doing but then to what extent i mean there's a point where people may not want to do this anymore and mm-hmm. that's not something we want but but you see this every day i mean as much as you love this you know the, the medicine part and what you do and to your point there's a point where you say this is no more what i i signed up for and that's it and you're just gonna give up and we don't want that because I mean, what are we going to do without you guys? I mean, we need we need we need a lot of you out there to help. You know, a lot of us. You know, hopefully, in in, in, uh, in we all get sick. And to, to your point, we just this is like the last week or so. I mean, the 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 flu is just going crazy. A lot of uh, hospitalizations and things like that are being reported. So it's challenging. So, but one thing I was you mentioned something. Two things. One, you mentioned about politics, and I don't like to to you know to talk politics, but I just the impact of it. Um, on, on decision or, or policy in terms of how the, the, the medicine is practiced and what you can, what you can't do. Like sometimes that could be, uh, you know, a challenge. And so if you can just as, as lightly possible to, to, to address that, if, if you can, I mean, I, there's no, you know, I know t- politics is taboo, so I'd never, my shows are not about, you know, politics, but, but the idea that sometimes I've had a discussion before where, for example, in California, uh, there, there was a, a new rule where you cannot possibly, uh, dictate some stuff if it's not by the CDC, or you cannot have an opinion unless it's actually dictated. Now, something like that for for a clinician can be almost limiting, right? And uh, you might see different, but you're not going to be able to do this. And without you know going you know shooting anybody, it's just like what does that impact you know do to clinicians, and how can they just cope with it and and really just keep moving? Well, I mean, clinicians, Western medicine trained clinicians like myself should be basing our opinions on evidence. Um, And the CDC is our governmental organization that is supposed to be acting based on evidence to push out the very best information to everyone. Um, This, there's this concept, a lot of people, this whole like do your own research thing where people feel like they could outsmart evidence-based medicine based on watching videos on YouTube or reading articles, personal testimonials, whatever it might be, um, is really disturbing because we part of what we learn in medicine is placebo effect. And we learn how people can be duped by personal narratives. And we learn how these um, alternative ideas spread and it's disturbing. And it's, you know, when you look at the evidence, they aren't borne out. And yet people really very adamantly believe that they know better than what evidence tells us. So um, I hear in your question, a fear that what if the CDC is just wrong, and now clinicians have to pass out what they're saying. So I think, you know, to kind of break that apart, we need to make sure the CDC is robust, that it's staffed with people who are reputable, who know what they're doing, and who are really going to be um, acting in patients' best interest and are not paid for by anybody with a second interest or um, an interest that is not uh, public health. So that's the first step. We need to make sure politicians are not constraining the hands of um, the scientists and researchers that I spoke very highly of from my medical school, um, who are doing this very hard work to give truly authentic information and to try to weed out any bias and weed out any um, misinformation as much as possible. I mean, I, I can't say strongly enough, health care really needs to be separated from politics. It is not about politics. And yet we have such a heavy amount of skepticism in our country that we can't even allow scientists to be scientists. (laughs) Um, And yet, at least from where I sit, from a position of um, someone who's been educated in science and in medicine, we really need to be able to follow evidence in making decisions and we need to have a healthy regard for our fellow humans. I mean, unfortunately or fortunately, vaccination isn't really just about the individual. It's actually about the whole community. And I don't know that we have that drive in the U.S. the way that I wish we did. Um, 
<laughs> it would help. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you for, for the statement. And, and again, uh, uh, this is really not about the politics itself, but but the impact sometimes, because again, some of the politicians may use some of the information from the government. Sometimes it's more opinionated, whatever, but they have because they have to drive certain you know agenda, whatever the case may be. And you're right. I mean, during the pandemic, it, it just happened to be one of those years where it's election year and all the stuff that's happened was not a cool thing. And so it turned a whole chaotic, you know, uh, more than it should have. But unfortunately we had to, to deal with that. But, but so, so, but, but you, 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 you alluded to something that mm-hmm. I want to just to connect. Now we're, we're talking pretty much U S healthcare. Now you guys are open to the world. I mean, medicine is, you know, and I know there's so much stuff that goes on throughout the, all the, the, the medicinal, you know, the, the medicine world, you know, across, you know, uh, other countries and other cultures and other, innovation and so on and so forth. So is there any cooperation that happens in that aspect to actually maybe uh, change a little bit of dynamics? And, you know, cause there's, there may be new ways or new innovations or new uh, techniques that are being utilized somewhere else that could be applied here. Uh, do we have even an appetite for that? Cause I know we're very stiff in terms of how our you know system is. So how do we deal with that? Especially if you know that something to your point, evidence-based and it's happening, it's working, but we're just not allowed to operate it here or use it here. Mm-hmm. Tough um, question, sorry, but <laughs> that's okay. So we're definitely getting away from my expertise in literature and medicine, but that's okay. Um, I'm happy to give you my opinion. I'm full of them. Um, I, you know, I think this is where we have to look at the fact that even cooperating with other countries or collaborating with other countries has some political um, implications. So, for example, um, as you probably know, there were some horrible racist events that happened in our country against people of Chinese descent when this virus was first identified. And people were blaming anyone who looked Chinese, which makes absolutely no sense. And so then subsequently, when we were getting evidence from China, it was treated differently than evidence we were getting from Italy. Why? Well, politics is really the the main answer. I mean, it could also be racism. It could be, you know, we have (laughs) we have a complicated relationship with the rest of the world and we have varying levels of willingness to accept information that is not from the U S of a. Um, So, I I mean, yes, there has been information and vaccines from other countries that we have looked at that we have maybe tried to mimic. And there was actually some very good information coming out of China, but there was also some skepticism that was politically driven, I think. So, it's really hard to divorce politics from, or at least in this pandemic, it was hard to divorce politics from the healthcare. And I really hope that isn't the case in a future pandemic because it made it extremely complicated to benefit from very good research that was being done across the borders. Well, thank you. And, and I appreciate you giving your opinion. I know we kind of went to attention there, but but the, the reason I ask that is that because it has to have an effect on our clinicians, because if you're a practicing doctor and you're like stressed out, you know, there's a solution and you just can't access it because of this. I mean, that's got to be a problem. And, you know, I don't know anyone that knows like there is a way to do something, but you just can't do it because to your point, we're restrict it, it makes it very difficult. And obviously that's got a stress level to it and it's going to impact how you deal with things. So that, that's really the reason I asked. So And supplies also, right? There were supplies we could get abroad, but we couldn't get them. That's there. right. And and you and you said it in the beginning, it was like very little equipment and it was like, it was almost like a market corner type of thing. You know, It began like, you know, a very unique world that we lived in. And it's, it's so sad that we had to go through it. And, and, Again, it was worldwide. This is not something that was unique to us, but every country dealt with it differently. Mm-hmm. So, so, so let's go back to to our core. <laughs> so, the book. So, so um, we've talked a little bit about different angles in the book. Is there anything else that that you've really highlighted in the book that is actually uh, beneficial to clinicians and or patients, uh, you know, uh, alike? Um, I think one of the things that's really unique about my book is that I wrote it in real time. So most people write, you know, looking through the retrospectoscope, right? They're looking back on their life. Well, now that I look back, I think this and this. But I really wrote this book while I was going through the experiences. And so I think there are a lot of very immediate moments of um, interest and inspiration and doubt and fear and empathy that are 
um, easy to feel as you read this book because I was going through them in the moment. So I think that's one of the things that's unique about this book about medical school is it's not looking back on it and it's not making fun of it. There are definitely some lighthearted, um, sarcastic books about some of the other things we go through in medical school. Um, but I think that what's unique about this one, in addition to the way that all of these experiences are interlinked with things that are completely away from and outside of medicine, especially to do with the outdoors, um, is this the immediacy um, of the experiences? Um, if we want to say one thing that's positive about the pandemic, <laughs> it's that um, I was able to start connecting clinicians on Zoom calls and Zoom meetings, right? I think Zoom is probably one of our one of our silver linings from the pandemic. Um, but I was able to actually, start teaching some of these literature classes and start connecting people using literature and um, using narrative medicine so that we could not feel quite as alone during the pandemic. So just as we were talking about that, it's not, it wasn't all, wasn't all horrible. Um, or maybe I should just say some small good things came out of the horribleness of, of feeling so isolated as clinicians is that we were really able to connect with one another. Well, I, I love that. That's that's awesome that you were able to to gather people and 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 connect because you're right. Without Zoom, I think, or any of those platforms, we would have literally, you know, suffered a lot more. And I think it created at least an opportunity for people to still interact and and be able to talk to people across the world and and socialize in a way. I mean, we had birthdays that were done through Zoom. We had weddings that were done through Zoom and stuff. So it changed the whole world. And 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 yeah, you're right. It, it even impacted a lot of people with business world, you know. And then a lot of people actually took the opportunity to do things during that. So there's some positive. Um, now the book is available. I'm assuming on Amazon and everywhere that we can get the book. Yes, it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Powell's Books. Um, so, and in some bookstores locally. Although I'm on the West Coast, I don't think that you are. <laughs> now we're East Coast, yeah. But again, it's Amazon Prime. Is is you know, it's like you, you can get it overnight anywhere. So you can you can get on your Kindle right now if you want. There to. you go. Available yeah. on Kindle as well. All right. Um, so yeah. I will I will have the the actual link uh, to your site and your book you know on the description of the show so people actually can have access to it and I'm assuming they can interact with you if they need it you know they have questions whatever I mean um, so that's that so folks I mean it's definitely something to to seek and 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 see a perspective that that probably can change your mind about the, the doctor and patient relationship and the clinicians world and you know and what they have to go through because to, sometimes we might judge you know. The, the doctors, whatever, because of how we see, you know, our perception, but unless we know what they go through, maybe we, we will appreciate the, them a lot better. <laughs> so, so I hope that's actually something that we can get from, from, from this, this particular show. Um, any last piece of advice to our audiences today, uh, regard, you know, whether it's their patient or clinician, or just like the interaction, how to kind of improve that relationship? I think my main advice is that that relationship is worth it. Um, so, I mean, how to improve it, how to improve it is attention. It's taking the time to understand one another. And it's, if you can't find that, if you're a patient and you can't find that with a clinician, that that may not be the right clinician for you. And if you're a clinician and you're finding it difficult to create that with patients, that you seek out some of these classes. There are, there are narrative medicine classes, there's literature in medicine. Um, even just reading short stories has been shown to improve people's ability to connect with one another. It's been shown to improve your empathy for one another. Um, and if you're a clinician, you know, and what you need to do is take a little step back, take that step back. It's so much better than burning out completely and not being able to go back to medicine because what we do is important. It's critically important. We don't want to lose all of the clinicians, all of the good clinicians who came to this with our hearts in the right places. Um, we need to, we need to be able to take it back in a way that we can enjoy our our practice and bring meaning back into our lives and that of our patients. Well, thank you, Doc. And actually, I couldn't ask for a better answer. <laughs> that was awesome. But, but you know, it's something you said that's so powerful is that 
I mean, doctors have to go through a whole many, many years of, of education and practice and so on and so forth, only to come down to a point in their life where they have to give up all that and then restart. I mean, that is not something we would love to hear. And, and I'm sure that's not something that they want to hear. So we, we're, we're your fans. We support you. And we know that you guys do your best out there to, to keep us healthy and, and maintain us in, you know, in the best shape. And, uh, you know, th- like you said, this is all about is as humans, we have to help each other and, uh, you're doing it. So again, greetings and salutes, you know, from, 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 from me and my audiences here. And then hopefully the world, you know, uh, this is something, you know, uh, a good uh, time for all our doctors out there. And, you know, thank you for, for being out there, for doing what you're doing. So I just, that's my little message you know, to all our world, you know, physicians and clinicians. So thank you so much. Well, thank, no, you so thank you. Thank you, Doctor, for being with us. And it's a lot of, you know, I've learned a lot and you've shared a lot of good stuff here. So I appreciate it. And folks, uh, we're coming to the end of the show. So uh, I'm your host, Hurricane H. We'll be talking soon. New day, new show, new topic. Hope you enjoyed the show. Talk soon. Bye-bye.